Good evening. Welcome to The Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon, running single and holding down the fort for my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, who's off today. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. CNN has run a hit piece on Radio Sputnik in which they argue that doubt is synonymous with misinformation. Also, we discuss the New York City subway shooting and China's role in the ongoing reorder of world power, amongst other things. Joining us to discuss this, we have investigative journalist Dan Lazar. Dan's also the author of The Velvet Coup, The Constitution, The Supreme Court, and The Decline of American Democracy, amongst other books. Dan, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Uh, Thanks for having me. Well, 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 let's start with this. CNN has run this hit piece on Radio Sputnik. And I looked at it, you know, and it was like, to me, it was all hat and no cattle. Even when I looked at it, it was just a few of the usual, they're Russian bots, they're on uh, American uh, news, and uh, they're sowing doubt. And doubt, we should never doubt the things that we're told by the government. That's what I learned, Dan. When we're told something by the U.S. State Department, CNN and MSNBC, the one thing we should never do is doubt. And I would suspect as an investigative journalist, you might take umbrage with that particular argument. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, like, and CNN. I mean, CNN is, a, is a, an atrocity, a journalistic atrocity story. I mean, its coverage, uh, not only on this issue, but going back years and years and years, has been so amazingly biased. Uh, and so... And so unskeptical. I mean, CNN, CNN just, you know, doesn't question the official story. It's happy to parrot back what it, what it wants to believe, uh, you know. And it's, uh, it's just the, 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 the worst journalistic travesty I've ever seen. And, and, this, and this hit piece is pathetic. I mean, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the, 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 um, the, the journalist, I forgot his name, begins by saying, like, well, of course, you know, this is funded by Russia. And therefore, Russia tells lies. So therefore, everything that Radio Sputnik says must be a lie. But yeah, but that's just that's just like stupid. Any 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 fourth grader can see through that kind of you know abysmal logic. Um, but that's you know that's that's what these these uh, these that's what uh, networks like CNN or MSNBC peddle, and they're just pushing censorship. Really, they are digging their own graves. They're they're calling for the government to essentially screen what, you know, what we can hear and see. And I think it's just, just appalling. And, and uh, you know, here's the other part of it, Dan. Their numbers are just appalling. It would be one thing if that was working, but it's not working from the perspective. If you see this, if you see CNN through the lens of a media outlet, you have to say to yourself, well, they've got to change course because nobody's watching, which means you can't look at them through the lens of a media outlet. I now, to be quite frank, I CNN, see CNN like I see these social media companies as operations of either um, intelligence community uh, groups, uh, political parties, um, the, uh, sponsors. To me, they're just conduits for power, and they don't seem to care anymore if anybody's watching, which few people are. Well, I mean, I would, I, okay, I, I, don't, I don't quite agree. I would call them, uh, the word I would use is infotainment. 
and uh, and whatever gets their ratings up, they're happy to go with. But they, but you're absolutely right that corner like they kind of like you know lost their winning formula. Uh, they were doing great under Trump because they 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 trumpeted every spurious Russia Gate story. I mean, they just like it was around the clock. You know, nothing but Russia, 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 and nine tenths of the stories turned out to be just like ridiculous. Um, so. Uh, so, uh, but now that Trump's gone, <laughs> they're stuck because their 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 major market draw has departed the scene. So, uh, you know, but I just think they're just they're, they they have been ludicrous. They are ludicrous, and they will. I'm quite confident they will continue to be ludicrous. <laughs> For as long as I can imagine. Now let's move to something that I think is 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 not just tangentially related. Biden's poll numbers. A recent Quinnipiac poll showing him at thirty three percent, twenty four percent among Hispanics, with fifty four percent disapproving. African Americans down to sixty three. He's dropped. 20 points, the most loyal group. And I've always said being a member of the African-American community, that's all about the United, the African-Americans still seeing a metaphor where the Republicans are the, you know, are the Confederates and the and the and the, and the Democrats are the union. But that's falling apart. We had discussed Barack Obama showing up, wandering around the White House, looking at, uh, you know, President Biden kind of, uh, you know, out of the side of his his his, you know, his his sunglasses and hanging out um, with uh, Kamala and the news. What do you think about Biden's approval ratings? And is his uh, is he on his way out long before we get to the November midterms? Well, he's on his way out. I mean, I, I don't I think he'll remain in office as far as I know, unless some kind of some extraordinary development takes place. But his poll numbers are, are dreadful and I think will only get worse. I mean, number one, he's, the, the economy is working against him. Uh, and uh, and and if he was the if he was the, the smartest, liveliest, most alert guy around, uh, he'd still be getting killed by the economy. But of course he's not. I mean, he actually, I, I, think, of, I think there's a huge problem in that the man uh, is definitely, uh, he's out of it. He, you know, he suffered two brain aneurysms in the late 90s, and uh, his mental capacity seems to have dramatically diminished over the last, uh, the last few years. He has this vacant look in his eyes. He kind of wanders around. His mental processes don't, feel, don't seem very strong. He doesn't have a grasp of the complexities of a situation like the Ukraine, for example. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, it's like my, I, I, I have a, a, an uncle, a dear, a dear uncle who recently departed this world at age 97. And this, cause this guy was the kind of guy who would like, you know, would pound the table and say, I'm right and everyone else is wrong. You know, and I feel like I have my aged uncle in the, uh, in the, in the Oval Office, you know, Viewing half crazy stuff, and and Biden, I think, is just really completely out of it. And I think the American people are aware too. Um, they, uh, I think, they they sense that something really bad is going on. But this, of course, is the logical outcome of the of the Democratic Party's evolution. Because remember, back in a back in the year twenty twenty, there were you know the, all the candidates were dreadful except for Bernie Sanders, who was generating real excitement. Because Bernie is a you know is a socialist, therefore the word went out that he had to be nixed, and the only remotely 
you know, uh, uh, pliable candidate uh, remaining was, uh, was, was crazy Joe. And, and, and Joe, therefore, was given the nomination, even though he could barely put a sentence together. Uh, and so he's the, he's, and, and he was given the nomination also because he just, his name was not Donald Trump. And so now the Democrats are stuck with one of the, 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 the personally, the, the least impressive uh, people ever to occupy the Oval Office. It's a real disaster. Now, I'm glad you mentioned the Democratic Party because there's another part to that, and that is what the Democratic Party, and I'll use this word, has devolved into, right? Because when they went with Biden, the biggest reason they went with Biden was because he wasn't Bernie Sanders, was because there was an element in their party that wanted some level of populism. The number 88 percent wanted Medicare for all. So there were people in the Democratic Party who wanted somewhat of a, um, a robust social safety net that actually wanted a return to some FDR kind of economic policies. And the Democratic Party leadership, the corporate leadership, had to squash that. And anybody would do. All they had was Joe Biden. That was good enough. And after they got Joe Biden, they said, well, who checks the boxes? That's the woman of color of this, of that. And rather than go for even competence behind them, they checked boxes But they definitely missed the competence box. And behind Joe Biden, they got Kamala Harris. So to me, it's it's the natural outcome of a party that is devolved into a, um, you know, a clubhouse for the billionaire donors. Your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, what is the what is the term in sports? uh, There's no bench. I mean, they they had they had no they had no decent candidates. I mean, that Pete. Buttigieg and a few other non-entities, and then they had, you know, and they had Kamala Harris, who, whose performance on the campaign trail during the 2020 primaries was abysmal. But because she, and and she's also, I mean, if you if you listen to her and you look at her, I mean, you can just tell this woman is a is a uh, not very intelligent. No. She's very nice. <laughs> You're being kind. Her. You're being and, very kind, yeah. Dan, and I appreciate and, uh, that. And but but the uh, but the uh, but you know but. That that was the best they could come up with. So we have we have a doddering, you know, geriatric case, and an empty-headed ditch, uh, and that's and those are the, the choices that the, the Democrats have saddled themselves with, and they don't know what to do in response. They are facing. I, I don't know. I mean, it's just, I, I hesitate to call the election when it's still what seven months away. <laughs> but uh, but to me, it looks like a. A, a tidal wave. It, it looks like 1932 today. Yeah, I agree. From one end of this country to the other, the Democrats won't be able to win registrar of wills in some innocuous county in uh, the bluest state in the in the union. We'll we'll never have seen anything like it. Now, let's some, something I think we can important we can talk to talk about a couple of articles. Why China and Russia Seek a Multipolar World, which is actually a very good Ramsey Baroud article. Very interesting. A few holes in it, but very interesting. And the other one is the Saker, which is the world's new monetary system underpinned by a digital currency will be backed by a basket of foreign of new foreign currencies and natural resources. And it will liberate the global south from both Western debt and IMF induced. If we can make it through this thing without 
ending up nuked, which is, you know, is, is certainly a question right now that we can't answer. But in the, we'll just uh, proceed forward as though we can. This multipolar world order, a new uh, monetary system, how do you see that shaking out? I, 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 I'm just not, a, I'm skeptical, really. Uh, I, I mean, um, there, you know, there's a whole school of thought which attracts huge importance to this concept of the reserve currency. Uh, and, and I just don't quite get it. But I do agree the U.S. is losing, losing power dramatically. And I think that the, uh, this, this Ukrainian war is a bridge too far for the U.S. Uh, I think the, um, the, 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 the fallout from the sanctions are hurting the U.S. very severely. They're causing turmoil in the, uh, in the global south. The global south is rebelling against U.S. hegemony, refusing to follow the U.S. line on this war. Uh, they're, just, they're just just sick and tired after decade after decade of American hypocrisy. Um, and so, uh, so I, I see the U.S. actually being battered by this war, and I see it losing power. Um, but, you know, but I, I, I just think, you know, I think China's facing real significant economic headwinds as well. I mean, the, this economy is weakening. weakening. It's, uh, it's um, the, the real estate problem, which is vast, ain't going away. Uh, Russia's facing serious economic problems. Uh, the whole world is. So I, I really think that global capitalism uh, is, is sinking on all sides. And I don't, I don't see, uh, you know, the emergence of a new reserve currency or multipolarity as somehow the miracle solution. I don't see it as a miracle solution, but I see it happening and maybe not as quickly as people ha- do. The two, two big things I want to ask you about, and I think they're both really huge, one being the U.S. seizing sovereign assets of Russia. I think that's major. And for years to come, people will be writing books about how people, you know, the billionaires in Dubai and Hong Kong and everywhere thought, holy moly, we got to get our money the heck out of the West. And Imran Khan, because I also think that a lot of powerful people who are even allies with the U.S. are looking at that saying, oh, boy, there but go the great there. But for the grace of God, go I. Those two things, I see them together as earth shattering events. What, do you, what say you, Dan Lazar? Yes, yes, I do. I do see both as earth-shattering events. And I think the other, the, the U, America's casual seizure of Russian bank assets and its politicization of the, of the swift you know, financial transfer mechanism, uh, is, I see those as very important. I mean, the, um, uh, whether or not the U.S. is correct, by the way, but the idea that, that countries that, that, that run afoul of America that their that their assets held in Western banks will be in jeopardy. I think we'll have a very. I think I think the response is is, is quite predictable. Those countries will move their assets into some safer, you know, uh, location, uh, and that means that the other uh, the the global financial system uh, is splitting and splitting apart. I mean, if I was China, I'd be very careful. I'd be like convening, you know, you know. Uh, special study groups to study, to examine the problem and figure out you know, how to handle it and how to respond. So I think that's, that's tremendously important. And I think the, um, uh, and I think that the politicization of SWIFT uh, is uh, an equally startling development because this means that, that the, that these kind of 
global financial transfers, which had one time gone away, you know, uh, taken place so smoothly. In fact, some people might argue too smoothly um, that they, this is a thing of the past, that we're, we, are, we are facing a, a organized financial structure. Um, and that the U.S. position as the as the the, the global financial umpire is just uh, you know it's just vanishing. And Imran Khan. Oh, and 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 Khan. I mean, the, the U.S. I mean, the, the the hypocrisy. I mean, really, you no know, one one law for for me, another another for me, where the U.S. feels it can overthrow governments that you know that that displease it. Uh, and that, it's, and that when the, when America does it, it's, it's right, and when other countries, you know, uh, do it, it's wrong. I mean, it's kind of simplistic, self-serving, uh, the moral, you know, ideology is just crazy. The world is sick of it. The world is completely sick of it. They're completely sick of American uh, hypocrisy. That's why. That's why there's a certain kind of, you know, of, of Schadenfreude, of. Uh, of pleasure over America's distress and the refusal to, to, to jump into line behind uh, this NATO war drive. Last but not least, something that you and I have talked a lot about and that uh, uh, um, Justin Trudeau is getting some heat again over the Nazis in Ukraine. Now, the people that are from the Wiesenthal Center are saying the government didn't do its due diligence. Well, I think they knew who those people in Ukraine were. But we've talked about this. And I believe, and if you look at what's happening in Ukraine, and after this is over, when we see witnesses who are Ukrainian unbiased people, when we find out, I believe the issue of Nazis in Ukraine will come back to haunt the Western companies that have supported them. I may be wrong. Your thoughts on the whole Nazi and Ukraine stuff, uh, Dan Lazar. We got about two minutes. It's tremendously important. And, and this, is, this is an outrageous lie. I mean, it's the same lie that the U.S. told during the, uh, the Afghan war in the 1980s, that the, that the Mujahideen were simply freedom fighters. They told the same lie that in Syria in, you know, in, in the 2010s, when they said that the, the jihadis were, you know, were, you know, they insisted they were, they were freedom fighters as well. They had nothing to do with al-Qaeda when they were clearly allied with al-Qaeda. And now they're saying that this whole story of, not, of Nazi influence in the Ukraine is Russian propaganda. But it's, it's absurd because it's not. It's a, it, it, it is a huge problem. The BBC a few years ago did an expose about the Azov Battalion's uh, Nazi roots. It was a very hard-hitting, very good expose. But now they recently did a piece a week or two ago, you know, essentially saying the opposite, that the Azov Battalion has cleaned up its ranks. It's a, it's a great big lie, a complete lie. I mean, the Ukraine is, is saturated with pro, you know, with, with a, with, you know, it's filled with, with, with street names, statues, plaques, conferences, et cetera, in honor of Stefan Bandera, who was the World War II collaborationist leader who took part in the slaughter of thousands of, thousands of Jews and, and perhaps as many as 100,000 uh, Poles during a vicious ethnic operation that broke out in mid-1943. The man is a monster. He's an absolute monster, but there are statues to him, plaques, etc., 
all over the country. And even even Zelensky, the president Zelensky, admitted that Bandera is a hero in Ukraine. That's the kind of state they have. And they can blame it on Russian propaganda as much. It's like, but it's like saying, like, no, it's, it's Russian propaganda. The sun rises in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the east. But it's not Russian propaganda. <laughs> and, uh, and this is a fact as well. It's, it, this is so insidious, so dangerous. Uh, uh, it is astonishing. Yeah, they're going to have to work on hiding that for a long time in the future. Well, we've been talking with Dan Lazar, investigative journalist and author of a number of books. You can find them online wherever books are sold. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. French candidate Marine Le Pen is looking to unseat a firmly entrenched EU leader as economics and foreign policy explode in Paris. Also, we're going to talk about the overall political and economic fallout from the Ukraine crisis. Joining us now, we have Dr. Gerald Horn. He's a professor of history at the University of Houston. He's an author, historian and researcher. Dr. Horn, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for inviting me. Well, you know, we've got a lot of places to go, but I think you really have to start with the French presidential race. Uh, Marine Le Pen, some interesting articles coming out now, which I can, uh, you know, I thought we'd start to see her plan shaping up. But she's actually, you know, she's doing the populist thing. There's an article that says Francis Macron and Le Pen call uh, basically a CEO's pay package there. She's calling that shocking. We see some discussions um, with her about issues. Of immigration, your thoughts on what's happening in France and what that means to the to the EU. Well, there is an article in this morning's New York Times by their columnist Paul Krugman, and he's comparing Marine Le Pen to her ideological comrades on this side of the Atlantic. He points out that with regard to social welfare programs, uh, pensions and retirement age and matters of that sort, that actually she's to the left of Mr. Macron. And we're talking about a candidate, Marine Le Pen, whose party, National Rally, formerly the National Front, as uh, Islamophobic and anti-Semitic groups, which interestingly enough, has driven together uh, many Muslims and those of Jewish ancestry on the same platform in France. And I don't think that Mr. Krugman does an adequate job of explaining the difference, because we all know that these cavemen Republicans in the United States, uh, they're bent and determined on slashing every last social welfare program. And I think part of the difference is the difference between a settler colonial regime, which is what you have in the United States, where you, the business model, was Europeans of various class backgrounds migrating centuries ago across the Atlantic uh, and joining hands in order to fight off the indigenous population, take their land, and then bring Africans across the Atlantic to work for their mutual advantage. And despite the supposed change in law and constitution over the decades and centuries, 
that basic ethos has not been eliminated. And so you still have this class collaborationism, although thus far it's not necessarily delivering the goods. Now, back to France, Marine Le Pen also is uh, talking about withdrawing France from the military wing of NATO. She's talking about rapprochement with Russia. She, in some ways, uh, mirrors the platform of her defeated rival, uh, speaking of Mr. Melanchon, uh, who got in the 20 percent child as well, as, as well as uh, Mr. Macron and Madame Le Pen as well. And so it's very interesting that that's the sort of political state of play uh, in France. And I, I would be remiss if I failed to mention that uh, Marine Le Pen also has been critical of Germany which is curious since the French-German axis is the locomotive of the European Union, but uh, she begs to differ. And I think that going forward, not least because of this conflict in Ukraine, you're going to see increasing fissures and splits and divisions in the European Union. Uh, Ukraine is partially responsible because if you look at this Ukraine conflict, what you must notice is that it's being driven by the United States, of course, in league with Poland and the Baltic Republics. Many of us are familiar with the fact that the German elite is quite nervous about this conflict. They're quite nervous about this impending oil embargo uh, combined with a natural gas embargo, uh, that is to say, not dealing with Russia with regard to energy. And in France itself, you have widespread and pervasive anti-U.S. imperialist ideology, uh, which stretches back uh, decades, uh, certainly at least to the years of, of uh, Charles de Gaulle, the uh, post-World War II leader. And so I think that going forward in the European Union, whether or not uh, Madame Le Pen is elected, it seems that if Mr. Macron winds up triumphant, He's going to have to pay attention uh, to these issues. He's going to have to uh, uh, carry forth on his rhetoric, his previous rhetoric, that NATO is brain dead, that France pursues strategic autonomy, because a good deal of the electorate is clamoring for a change in course. And the question I think we need to ponder is what will be the impact upon the U.S.-dominated North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Let me ask you this, something that had popped into my mind last night that I wanted to add to that and get your thoughts on it. AUKUS, when that happened and they, you know, put the screws to some uh, economic deals that France had, my first thought was I thought of it ethnically and I thought, hmm, it seems to me that the U.S., uh, you know, we're seeing the U.S., uh, U.K., Australia, it's the— Anglo-Saxon empire, rebuilding the Anglosphere, the Anglo-Saxons, in, in, in the, the, the English-speaking um, uh, uh, empire, and France and Germany, they ain't English-speaking. They were left on the outside. I, I think there were some hard feelings there. Is this Ukrainian crisis exposing some fissures that were already there? Anyway, I'm going to throw that at you. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, Certainly, Britain has been 
hawkish on the Ukrainian crisis. Uh, indeed, if I can footnote my previous comment, I would add that with regard to the hawks, I would not only include the United States, Poland, and the Baltics, meaning uh, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, but I would have to throw in Boris Johnson in London as well. In some ways, in fact, he's to the right of the United States. Of course, he's trying to distract attention from his many domestic problems, some of his own making, such as the Partygate scandal, that is to say the time when he had declared a lockdown, yet he and his staff were partying like it was 1999 uh, on the government dime. And he has been asked to resign. Of course, he is ignoring that for the time being. But there is something to this reconstruction or construction of the so-called Anglosphere. Certainly, once Britain cut loose from the European Union, their only choice was to become a, a kind of protectorate, uh, if you like, of the United States of America of which is the status into which it's drifting, which is one of the reasons why Britain is so hawkish with regard to the Ukraine. Certainly the fact that Washington engaged in the Bigfoot maneuver of a so-called superpower by elbowing aside its ally France and scooping up a multi-million dollar uh, submarine deal with Australia, uh, that did not go down very well uh, in Paris, as well to the point previously made about Madame Le Pen being critical of Germany when the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz announced uh, after February 24, 2022, that Berlin would be spending tens of billions of dollars on, quote, defense, unquote. The initial contracts apparently will be going to the United States, even though France is there. European Union comrade. And that only fuels uh, Madame Le Pen's skepticism uh, of Berlin. And to reiterate the point, I think that however the situation in Europe evolves in coming weeks, months, and years, you're going to see increasing friction, increasing fissures between and amongst the European Union nations Hopefully, it would not rise to the level of World War One or World War Two, uh, when oceans of blood were shed. Uh, but uh, certainly, the seeds of that kind of conflict are now present. Thinking about uh, Le Pen and her statement, something I've been thinking, discussing lately, and that is the issue of sovereignty. Um, it appears to me that th- what's one of the things coming to, coming to a head here is: do, do the European states have sovereignty? Did the United States Empire simply annex them and continue to occupy many of them after World War II? And when I see the leaders of a country taking actions at the behest of the people here in Foggy Bottom, not just a few short blocks from where I sit, and it, it has dramatic negative effects, effects on their own population, I say, well, it's obvious to me who they're working for, and it ain't the citizens in their own population. It seems to me the question with Marine Le Pen that she's raising is, 
Are we going to be a sovereign nation or are we simply going to be a U.S. colony that acts on be at the behest of the, the neocons of all people now in the U.S. to the detriment of our citizens? I think that's a question that's being kind of phil- philosophically raised with, with her candidacy. And I'm not saying that to say she's some kind of a, a Moses figure to usher in a, a wonderful new time. I'm just saying that I think that's an adequate metaphor. Your thoughts? Certainly, the contradictions are sharpening uh, in the North Atlantic corridor. You see this in Germany because, to your point about World War II, uh, 75 years after the end of World War II or more, you still have these numerous U.S. bases uh, in Germany, the same with Japan. And it's no secret that the U.S. Embassy and the U.S. intelligence agencies are interfering in the internal affairs of Germany. Uh, France, uh, luckily, has not uh, been festooned with those U.S. spies and no good mix. But I think there is something to your point that uh, Marine Le Pen, and I should say more accurately, more precisely, the French electorate, uh, does not want to be an auxiliary of U.S. imperialism. The contradiction, as we pointed out previously, is that in order to maintain its neo-empire in Africa, France relies upon aerial and satellite assets from Washington, which then in turn leads to a compromise of sovereignty. So if Marine Le Pen was actually uh, a person, a candidate, wholly in favor of France exercising sovereignty, she would have to cut ties with regard to that uh, aerial and satellite reliance. And somehow I don't see that happening. Now, let me ask you this. Let's hop across the pond. Um, some interesting articles. You know, normally there were there was the wag the dog theory when this first started. You know, the U.S. was hoping to instigate this thing in Ukraine. And then, of course, Joe Biden's poll numbers would go up and all would be dandy in Democrat land. A recent um, article that I'm seeing, a new Quinnipiac, Quinnipiac poll has President Biden with a 33 percent approval rating. And most of, us, of those of us who have been watching suspect that it is on a downward trend. Um, we're seeing articles that say, you know, the, the, the Democrats are looking at, you know, a, uh, a wipeout of biblical proportions in November. It, that's a long ways away. But if the election were today, you'd need to go into a museum to find a Democrat by next week. We saw Barack Obama wandering around the White House recently looking as, you know, uh, glaringly at, um, at, at, at President Biden as though there may be some kind of activity afoot. Put all this together. What do these poll numbers mean? Is this, I think that part of this is blowback from Ukraine in that the refusal to address the, 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 excuse me, the focus on that and the refusal to address the very significant economic problems here is glaringly obvious to a lot of Americans, and I don't think they're happy about it. Your thoughts? Well, the usual winning platform for a party or a leading politician is peace and prosperity. And there, there is no peace with this war. Indeed, with the Russian warning today in the United States, to stop building up this formidable arsenal in Ukraine or face certain consequences, it's possible that this war could spread further than it has already. 
And with that, you saw the speech of Secretary of Treasury uh, Janet Yellen warning China to get on board with regard to primary sanctions against Russia or perhaps be subjected to secondary sanctions. You see that with six U.S. leading politicians led by Senator Bob Menendez, a Democrat from New Jersey, a hawkish Democrat, uh, a reflection, I'm afraid to say, of his roots in the right-wing Cuban-American community, you see that their presence in Taiwan, with these six senators visiting Taiwan, has been greeted by a formidable Chinese military exercise, uh, which is quite ominous. And then I would point you to the article in the Wall Street Journal today, uh, which points up something we've been talking about for weeks now, which is the lukewarm approach in the global south to primary sanctions against Russia, which does not bode well for this escapade. And then with regard to prosperity, that very same conflict obviously has had an impact on energy prices, price of gasoline at the pump. It's had an impact on food prices. We see that COVID has not been fully addressed. And it's rearing its ugly head as we speak, despite the fact that many Republicans are on denial, uh, eager and anxious to return to a certain kind of normalcy, although it's evident that that is not in the cards as of today. So if you add all that together and then you add in the kind of ideological backwardness that I'm afraid to say is part of the political landscape, in the United States, across class lines, by the way, uh, that does not bode well for the Democrats and this uh, November 2022 election. But uh, that may be the least problem that we face in light of the fact that this conflict in Ukraine is spreading like an oil spill. And I'm glad you brought up Taiwan because um, we've, we've got about three minutes. It appears to me that that is the appetizer, shall we say. It appears to me that it, that the Chinese are looking at what's happening. They're seeing, okay, the Russians are going to knock the, the, the U.S. off their border, and all the U.S. is going to do is sanctions, and that ain't hurting so bad. It's hurting the U.S. and their allies even worse. I think they see a formula, and it wouldn't shock me if we are seeing some, we see something very similar in the offing in the coming months. Uh, we got about two minutes. Your thoughts? Well, I, I think that's some, there's something to what you say, and indeed other analysts are agreeing with you. Uh, I would also point to another piece that appeared in the Wall Street Journal either today or yesterday by the uh, hawkish intellectual Michael O'Hanlon of Brookings, all, once again within walking distance of where you're sitting, where he's suggesting that the United States is depleting a good deal of its arsenal by shipping it into the Ukraine theater. And the inference being that this could present an opportunity for China uh, to move on Taiwan because the United States is bogged down in Ukraine, not only bogged down, but uh, depleting its arsenal uh, in Central and Eastern Europe. And it's typical of the short-sightedness of U.S. imperialism that it's difficult for them to be chess players and think two or three moves ahead, they're basically checker players. 
and rather simple-minded checker players at that and can only think one jump ahead. And the tragedy there is that many of us are stuck on this ship of fools that is headed directly towards an iceberg. I think you are correct. And I think the, uh, you know, if uh, people think that the uh, there's blowback from the Russia sanctions, sanctions against our number one trading partner and most of the world's number one trading partner by the U.S. and the NATO, I think would cause unrest and uproar when people realize that the, the only thing they could find on their shelves at the local grocery store and beyond would be dust. Um, thank you very much. We've been talking with, with uh, Dr. Gerald Horn. Dr. Horn is a professor of history at the University of Houston. He's an author, historian, researcher. He's got lots and lots of books out. You can go to anywhere that books are sold online and find any number of his books. My favorite one is the one about Paul Robeson, but there are plenty of good ones. So check out Dr. Horn's books. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. Washington neocons make it clear that their plan is to use Ukrainian lives to weaken the Russian Federation. Also, as President Zelensky makes enemies in the EU, the Russia-China strategic alliance seems to be strengthening. Joining us to discuss these and other issues, the one and only Mark Sloboda. He's a Moscow-based international relations security analyst. Mark, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Garland, thanks for having me. So Jake Sullivan has revealed the U.S. plan as if it was, you know, a deep and dark secret, which doesn't seem to be working. They're going to weaken Russia and they're certainly weakened in the EU and they want an independent Ukraine, which I got to I got to I got to wonder about this. You overthrow a government, put in a compliant puppet government, completely run the country and say you want the country to be independent. Help me out, Mark. Maybe I'm not understanding what Jake is saying. Maybe it's a context. You know, they always say online, you got the context wrong. Maybe it's the context I'm missing. Mark Sloboda. Yeah. So, I mean, the United States has long wanted a geopolitically flipped Ukrainian client state. I mean, I'm sorry, an independent, free and democratic <laughs> Ukraine. <laughs> All right. I mean, this is absurd. Um, in in 2013, Ukraine was a free, independent, democratic, and neutral country that balanced its relations between the West and Russia uh, and, you know, often cunningly played them off to each other uh, as best it could to its own interests. Um, it ceased being an independent, free, and democratic uh, country when there was an openly U.S.-backed putsch, which overthrew the last legitimate democratically elected government in Ukraine. And since then, the country has been completely reliant, not independent, reliant on uh, uh, funds uh, from the U.S., uh, and EU states, uh, uh, often through the auspices of the IMF to prop up the regime uh, and uh, to arm it and train it. And, and for eight, well, for seven years of that, 
the purpose of that arming and trading was simply to kill its own people in the east of the country into subjugation to the seizure of power in Kiev in 2014. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I don't think that anyone can take Jake Sullivan's statements here uh, seriously. Yes, of course, he does want a weakened Russia. He would prefer a destroyed, broken Russia, um, you know, but but he'll take what he can get on that score. Um, but um, it, Ukraine does not come out of this either independent or whole. Right. That That is that yeah. is, you know, uh, an inevitable result, right? Ukraine is going to be partitioned or balkanized somewhere. Mm -hmm. It's just a question of of where that lies, and uh, the the separate pieces of what once were was Ukraine, uh, you know, uh, are are not going to uh, be free or independent, uh, you know. Either way, on either side uh, of this NATO-Russia conflict, because ultimately uh, that's what it is. And when you boil down the NATO to what it really is, a U.S.-dominated military alliance, it's a U.S.-Russia conflict. Just uh, the U.S. is fighting mostly through proxies in this case. You know, that calls me to ask something, and there's two things uh, that I'm going to put together. One is, so I read that the Russia has warned the U.S., you know, you need to stop sending weapons to arming Ukraine. That being said, let me give you my thoughts on it real quick, Mark. Every time I turn around, they're going to send some Soviet-era tanks or some 1970s-era tanks, which to me is like a, a just a psyop. It is a, a, a PR for the Americans or, you know, to try to make the people in the U.S. And, and in the EU think that, you know, boy, plucky old Ukraine is standing up to the Russians and they're fighting. They, they A, they would have to train people to use them. B, they would have to have fuel for them, which they don't. C, they would have to somehow get in the battle. And since 90 percent of their other their armor has been destroyed, one would suspect that this would be another one percent that wouldn't last long. So even though the Russians say stop arming arming them it appears to me that a lot of the business of we're going to arm them and we're going to see we're going to give them some more info so they can fight russia seems mostly from my perspective more of a public relations stunt for the american people than in reality providing the ukrainians something that's going to allow them to turn the tide or that will even be effective more than a few days before it gets blown to smithereens anyway mark your thoughts yeah okay so i mean uh, obviously, uh, Russia can say whatever it wants, but the U.S. and its European allies are going to continue flooding uh, the Kiev regime with all the weapons that that they can muster that 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 makes sense. And actually, uh, what the U.S. and and uh, you know uh, NATO in general is arming Ukraine with actually makes military sense. Um, uh, first of all, you know these handheld um, tens of thousands of handheld anti-tank right. and um, uh, anti-aircraft missiles, javelins, man pads, um, stuff uh, like that, man pads, right, yeah. right, uh, and laws. I mean, going right into the hands, the smiling hands of the right sector and Azov neo-Nazi death squads, smiling and taking pictures with them. They can, they are portable. Um, they, uh, can, uh, you can take someone, uh, you know, to, to train on it relatively quickly. Um, you know, it, it largely is a fire and forget, uh, systems. Um, and, uh, you know, they're not going to turn the tide of the war, 
but they can certainly fuel a bloody insurgency for years. Likewise, with the equipment uh, from the former Warsaw Pact countries uh, of of uh, uh, that are now part of NATO, um, those uh, systems are things that Ukraine is familiar with mm-hmm. that they can repair. Uh, that they likely already, uh, for most of it, already have, uh, you know, maintenance and and logistics supplies uh, for. So it actually makes sense. Okay. But you're right that it is not going to be in the volume that they can get safely across the border that will change it. Take a look. Uh, Slovakia passed um, the uh, Kiev regime an S-300 air defense system, a a good air defense system by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but And they deny this, but it seems pretty clear that uh, Russia already wiped it out. Right. Um, And that's going to happen with any big ticket items that are attempted to be brought, uh, smuggled across the border uh, into the conflict zone by Europe. And what that is going to do is that is going to get some some European uh, NATO drivers probably killed. Um, uh, almost certainly. I mean, you would hope that they're they're actually having uh, before the border that they're having Europeans get inside of it, uh, and or, I mean, Ukrainians get inside of the military vehicles and driving them across the border so that you know uh, they're used as 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 target practice rather than uh, you know the NATO troops. But who knows uh, at this point? It is uh, going to be incredibly destabilizing. It will prolong the conflict, but it will not change the end result because ultimately. Ultimately, Russia, with its culture, its history, the large ethnic Russian minority there, the people of the east of the country uh, who largely have never agreed with this geopolitical reorientation, Russia cares far more about Ukraine and its people than the U.S. or the West does. And ultimately, that will tell. You know, Mark, I do want to ask you this. We had some other things to talk about, but can you update us on the what's going on on the ground? And we hear about Mariupol. We're hearing about uh, reports of, you know, a thousand people here and there um, giving giving up. And I've seen some of the interviews we've seen. And, and, and but of course, you know, like I say about the U.S. or Russia, I'm sure they're going to put out stuff that benefits them. If we're honest about it, that's that's the reality. But um, what's going on? The big battle of Donbass that we're hearing. Can you update us? on what what you what what you know about what's happening on the ground what stage we're in and what are the latest big headlines as far as on the ground Okay, so uh, Mariupol is is all but liberated uh, by Russian forces. Uh, There are some uh, Azov neo-Nazi death squad uh, holdouts still in the Ostoswal steel plant, which is kind of like a concrete city within the city. It is an enormous war, and it has multiple underground levels. And for the most part, they are now basically have become tunnel rats, uh, which – you know, normally it would be very hard uh, to get them out. Um, Russia has been conducting uh, uh, strikes, uh, precision strikes, missiles, uh, airstrikes, uh, and uh, uh, heavy artillery as well, because now there's no question of Azov using uh, uh, the, the people of Mariupol for human shields now that they're isolated there. Um, and, and we've seen uh, some, some uh, video pictures of, of some pretty heavy strikes uh, coming in. But uh, underground uh, in these, uh, you know, what are essentially fortified Soviet-built factories, you know, a lot of levels underground, if they have enough ammunition, food and water, they can hold out for a long time. 
uh, it's difficult it, going in after them would nullify any advantages right. of superior uh, technology, numbers, anything at this point. Uh, but they are about uh, – the one good thing that is they're not going to have to worry about having a problem with water. In fact, they're going to have a surfeit of water, more water than they can handle because Russia evidently intends to flood the tunnels. Oh, that's going to be a problem. So in other words, it's a big tomb. Yeah, it's a – and uh, there's a lot of chatter coming from serious people in the West too talking about, shall we say, uh, the Azov Battalion's foreign guests that are there with them. Now, to ask you about that, I have read that there have been because, you know, this kind of stories that were floating around, some of them, you know, a little bit more out there than others. But I am reading somewhere that there have been some foreign at minimum, we'll call them mercenaries, that there are some foreigners have been captured, that there are definite reports of that. Mercenaries of ashore. We've already definitely had confessions by one British mercenary who has actually come out and admitted, oh, actually that, uh, you know, the Kiev regime forces were abusing the people of Mariupol and stealing food from them and killing them. And and he wants no more part of any of that. But it's nice of him to suddenly have that revelation. Of course, he wasn't exactly going to sneak away from Azov. Uh, once he was already committed to that. But I think he probably ended up far better uh, than than he had any right to um, at, at end results. So he, he survived and he is now a prisoner. He should be a prisoner of war, uh, maybe. I don't know if Russia will consider him an unlawful com- combatant. But there is a question of, of more serious, uh, shall we say. Um, we have heard from French intelligence uh, former French intelligence officers that there may be uh, U.S. Uh, and and uh, uh, other NATO state uh, intelligence and special forces agents in there as well. And that that we'll, we'll have to see. Certainly, France in particular was going to extreme lengths to try to get somebody out of there, uh, but it didn't work. So so we'll find out eventually. Um, I, I only hope that uh, it happens before Russia floods the tunnels because uh, it would be a, a a shame uh, not to be able to put them on trial, um, which Russia has announced they will do with it, with anyone that they uh, capture from uh, NATO states. Uh, but that that's about done with. And actually, uh, Russian and uh, Donbass forces have already been to relocate from around Mariupol up to the cauldron, uh, where the majority of, of the Ukrainian regular military is dug in in uh, the outskirts of Donbass between Kramatorsk uh, and Slavyansk. Um, and um, uh, also sending some over towards Air Sun. So, so Mariupol is, is all but over at this point. The Cauldron uh, Offensive is coming. Uh, this will be a huge battle. It will not be something that happens quickly. Um, there are very heavy fortifications. There are up to 100,000 Kiev regime forces there dug in. Uh, they're probably short on ammo, food, you know, etc., but they are – uh, pretty heavily dug in, and uh, it's going to be a uh, a World War II scale battle in Eastern Europe. Wow. Uh, also, um, you know, there's something I wanted to ask you about, and that is um, the the Germans have been have been angry at Ukraine because uh, the Ukraine refu- refused to allow their the president to come in. The um, uh, the Greeks aren't happy because uh, 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 Zelensky brought a couple of neo-Nazis with him. Clearly, there's some issues going on in France. It seems to me that the U.S.'s coalition is fracturing 
Um, your thoughts on those things, how they're coming together? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some problems. Uh, there's no question that the the German government, first of all, is divided amongst itself. The Greens, are, the Greens uh, which uh, Baerbach has the Ford ministry, are screaming for full support and heavy weapons. Meanwhile, uh, Steinmeier, the president from the Social Democrats, has been snubbed because of his work on Nord Stream 2 and pushing the Steinmeier formula to implement the Minsk Accords. He's hated by uh, the far right, uh, the um, uh, Banderite battalions uh, in Kiev. Uh, so um, they're, they're quite miffed um, and they've announced a limit to any further, Germany says it can't provide any more arms to Ukraine. Uh, and Zelensky is, is furious that he doesn't have Germany's full-throated defense, that they're not willing to defend his regime over Germany's national interests and shut down their own economy. Uh, for Zelensky uh, and his neo-Nazis. Um, but um, uh, it, there's definitely some problems uh, there. Um, also, uh, Slovakia and Hungary have already broken ranks and said that they will agree to uh, make the purchases for Russian gas with rubles, breaking with the rest of, of uh, so far of the EU states there. Um, that's uh, another fracture. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, Macron is is fl uh, flitting around doing various things because he's in a tight election battle with Marine Le Pen. Um, and, uh, you know, that w uh, an election that does have big foreign policy uh, differences between the two of them, particularly on the conflict with Ukraine and relations with Russia and the sanctions and, and the blowback from those sanctions and so on. So, uh, yeah, Europe uh, is not looking as united um, uh, under uh, the U.S. direction uh, on the issue of, of the Russian intervention in Ukraine as much as, well, um, Anthony Blinken and Jake Sullivan would like. Well, thank you very much. We've been talking with, and uh, to, to quote an old Bachman-Turner uh, uh, Overdrive song, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> you wait till these prices start going up and getting worse um, over the course of the summer. I think it's going to be ugly. We've been talking with Mark Sloboda. He's a Moscow-based international relations security analyst and friend of the show. Thanks a lot, Mark. You're listening to Thanks. The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. Russia has formally warned the U.S. to stop arming Ukraine. Also, China is reacting harshly to U.S. meddling in Taiwan. Twitter has been involved in extreme censorship and our panelists come together to discuss the French election and how it can affect the U.S.-run NATO alliance. Joining us today, we have former U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq, Scott Ritter, and Ray McGovern, former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. Gentlemen, thank you very much for coming. Thanks for having me. Most welcome. Let's start here. Russia has formally warned the U.S. to stop arming Ukraine. Uh, Russia sent a formal diplomatic note to the U.S. this week calling on Washington and NATO to stop arming Ukraine. I'm going to add this to it. There's been another a number of other stories basically where Russia has said the last few days they intend to target um, shipments of weapons coming into Ukraine. And I'm thinking to myself at this point, they, you know, they haven't been striking them at the border. If somebody wanted to give me the job of 
driving the trucks or trains, bringing those weapons across the Poland border into Ukraine. At this point, I wouldn't take that job. I think it has just gotten very, very dangerous. Let's start with you, Scott Ritter. What does this mean? Well, I mean, we're, we're dealing with a situation where, let's be frank, uh, this isn't an academic exercise. Uh, the United States and the West are providing weapons for the sole purpose of killing Russians. So now put on your Russian hat and say, is this a situation that you can tolerate? And the answer is no. Now, Russia has tolerated it because Russia has sought to limit the scope and scale of the of the consequences of its special military operation there's a reason why it's called a special military operation because it's not a war it's not an invasion russia isn't doing any of the things that they should be doing such as taking out command and control the fact that Zelensky can still hold a command meeting in a bunker and walk out alive tells you that russia's letting him walk out alive uh the fact that nato can bring together arms shipments and then have them driven across the border to a receiving point where they're turned over to uh, the Ukrainians who then take it to an intermediate point um, without any interdiction uh, tells you the Russians are letting that happen. Uh, and I think right now the Russians are feeling the pressure of um, you know, political pressure that you have Russian soldiers dying uh, in a war because of the weapons being given to Ukraine. And so Russia is saying no more. And what's going to happen going forward, it's not an if. This is going to happen. There will be a shipment of weapons that will be driven by Polish drivers, maybe in concert with some Ukrainian drivers, because some of the people say that the trucks are picked up by Ukrainian drivers who drive across the border. But they're going to be hit as soon as they cross the border. And um, there will is the likelihood that there will be non-Ukrainian casualties associated with uh, that that hit. And this is going to cause uh, great problems in the NATO alliance when body bags containing Polish or Romanian or Hungarian or Slovakian um, uh, citizens uh, are, are, are heading home. But this will happen because Russia cannot allow this to continue to happen, just like they can't allow the Ukrainians to have carte blanche when it comes to command and control. Those days are over. Russia's changing the game. It's just a sad reality of war. Ray McGovern, your thoughts? Well, I agree with, with Scott, of course. Um, I would just point out that uh, uh, if I put my Putin hat on, as Scott suggests, um, I know, because I've actually said it publicly, that U.S. foreign and military policy is hostage to U.S. political domestic political considerations. So so what does that mean? Well, it means that since Biden doesn't want to appear weak, uh, even though he says, you know, we're not going to defend Ukraine, we're not going to go in there, you know, but, oh, we give them all kinds of weapons. Well, that's what this is all about. And so uh, the Russians are trying in, in, in a diplomatic way, saying, you know, this is really crazy because uh, this would make you pretty much a co-belligerent and Soto Voce, we're gonna we're gonna shell, we're gonna knock the the Jesus off of the stuff that you send in. Now they sent a note. Now if if the stuff comes in, and Russian military intelligence capabilities are are good enough to to find out when they go in, they're gonna be smashed to smithereens. 
what those young folks that that advise Biden haven't told them is that you know then you're not going to look you're not going to look strong, Mister President. You're going to look, or you're going to look sort of hapless, sort of naive, as though you thought that you could send some weapons in without them being cleaned up, or clocked out, just destroyed. So now you look really now you look really weak. What are you going to do now? That's the kind of situation they're trying to get get uh, Biden into. And, um, you know, this is really, really dangerous. So what we need to do, uh, we need to make sure that what Scott has been telling everybody the last couple of weeks is the reality. The Russians have the, the predominance of force in the area. And as Sean Mearsheimer, bless his heart, still speaking truth to power, says Russia can't afford to lose. They must win this one because it's an existential threat. What does that mean? <laughs> that means they're going to blast these new weapons to smithereens as they have already blasted some AAA or air defense systems that have come in from Slovenia, I guess. And and not, you know, I just have to say this last thing. Uh, Putin has an insurance policy. He's been paying premiums on it. And the premiums have been pretty reasonable uh, for 20 years now. And the insurance policy is China. And China has made it very, very clear that they are in this together with Putin because they know if Russia is destroyed or really loses Putin, it gets out of the, the equation there. China is next on the list. <laughs> Washington makes no secret of this. China is still enemy number one. We'll get rid of Russia, China. So in other words, what we've got here is a... Is a, uh, a, a tectonic shift in in the uh, relate correlation of forces where you have a white NATO on one side, you have people of color in India and China, and people who have been blackened to the extent the Russians have, they're people of color now too, South Africa, Brazil, you've got most of the population of the world not heeding U.S. diktat. And I'm not sure that our young policymakers have got that through their ivy mantle. You know, I want to get to China, but first there's another interesting article, and I want to get uh, based on, you know, through the context of what you just said, um, Scott, a minute ago. And this one is two U.S. lawmakers visit Kiev as Biden moles sending high-level officials. We're talking about a war zone. If you ask me, hey, Garland, would you like to visit Kiev and hang out? I'd be like, "Uh, it's a war zone that's kind of dangerous. Sending people into a war zone when Russia's already said it's a dangerous world, you never know where missiles could start flying. They're treating this thing like it's something other than a military engagement, and they could be at the wrong place at the wrong time. And I'm going to add something else, uh, Scott and Ray both. I don't trust these as well, they're Nazis. You can't trust the Azov people. But I'm point, I'll say this. They could very well say, you know, the way to get the West in is to get some U.S. people in here very, very high level and blow them up and then say the Ruskies did it. So now you got to come in and fight. This is foolish and dangerous. Your thoughts about U.S. lawmakers and or even higher level officials going to Kiev. Start with you, Scott Ritter. Well, you know, something we found out about um uh, Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister's recent visit to Kiev, is that there's something called the diplomatic corridor that has been established connecting Poland with Kiev. And the diplomatic corridor exists uh, through the coordination 
between uh, NATO and Russia. So that if you have a, a politician or a diplomat that needs to visit, uh, the idea is that a, a route is agreed upon in advance. The timing of that route is agreed upon, and the Russians have said, we won't attack it. Um, this is uh, the old way of doing business. Back when Russia was playing ball uh, with a special military operation, um, that game has changed, especially if the United States um, ignores the Russian note about weapons. And while I don't believe Russia would ever deliberately attack uh, a diplomat, you know what doesn't happen when diplomats are visiting Kiev? Missiles don't go off. Big things don't go boom. I think those days are over. I think if an American senior official shows up in Kiev, there's going to be a sound and light show, not targeting them, but making them aware that they are, in fact, in a combat zone. And this will be doubly bad because now we come back to the point that Ray made. If you're an American standing in Kiev looking strong, staring into the camera, making bold statements while everything is peaceful around you, the impression is you're the one responsible for the peace. Conversely, if you're the American trying to make a speech and in the background things go boom and you duck and you look over your shoulder and you look scared, suddenly the truth comes out. You're not in control of anything. You're weak. You're pathetic. And that's what's going to happen, I believe, if the Americans go to, uh, if they send a high-level delegation to Kiev. Because Russia's not going to let the United States stand there and look weak. Boris Johnson went in before he went to Kiev. He was a loser politician on his way out. This is the guy that had pandemic parties. Everybody viewed him as a buffoon. He lied to Parliament. He was the worst ever. And overnight, because of a trip to Kiev, he is now Winston Churchill resurrected. He is the brave face of England standing up to Russia. It was a huge mistake for Russia to allow that optic to occur. And I think the Russians know it. And I don't think they're going to make that mistake again. Ray, your thoughts on that and my, you know, suspicions that it's dangerous from the perspective of there are unscrupulous elements in the Ukrainian government and military that could potentially see something like this as an opportunity to draw in the West, which they so desperately want. Well, Garland, I think you you make a really important point here. Uh, once again, I agree with what uh, what Scott said with one one exception, and that is uh, the Azov people, the, the right sector. In other words, yeah, uh, if there's a high-level delegation, there will be fireworks, there'll be missiles in the background, there'll be lots of noise, and it's going to be very embarrassing for these interviews. But also, and this is the real danger, uh, who can who can assure anyone that even if Zelensky and all his people try to prevent it, that these crazy Nazis couldn't do in whatever high-level U.S. visitor there, there was or there is. That's that's. Uh, I think Garland, you point to to the uh, to the real conundrum here. Uh, I think it's. Uh, I think Scott is right. It's not going to happen much longer, particularly if if these eight hundred billion, eight hundred million dollars worth of stuff keeps going in. Uh, but uh, you know, Zelensky can't prevent these things from happening, even if he doesn't want them to happen. And all that all that has to do is, as Scott says, 
um, show up on U- U.S. Uh, TV screens, and Biden will be faced with a propaganda problem, and they will be telling him, oh, we got to notch it up some more. We need a no-fly zone, or we need you know, blah, blah, blah. And nobody seems to realize that NATO and the West cannot win this militarily. And so what they're, what's happening is because they won't recognize that they're fighting with Ukrainians doing all the fighting for the last Ukrainian. Now, let's go on to China. Um, even as we speak today, there's been incidents where the um, a number of uh, U.S. lawmakers um, have gone to um, Taiwan. Uh, China is obviously furious. Last week, we saw something interesting wherein Nancy Pelosi said she was going to go and the actual Chinese military, you know, respond, you know, made it made, put, put out a response. And she got COVID, I guess, and couldn't go. Um, the 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 the, um, the um, Chinese military is doing drills around uh, very very heavy drills around Taiwan. This looks like a replay, and it looks like if I think the Chinese are looking at what's happening in Ukraine and saying the Russians are doing it. The U.S. It's they're all mouth. They ain't they ain't stepping in, and um, the sanctions ain't all that bad. We they can weather them. We can weather them. You know. It's a dangerous situation. Start with you. Uh, Scott Ritter, your thoughts on Taiwan. Look, the Chinese have made it clear that Taiwan is as much a red line to them as Ukraine was a red line to Russia. Prior to Russia going into Ukraine, I think there was some hesitancy on the part of China about what to do with Taiwan, because it's it's a huge step to initiate regional conflict. Um Now, Taiwan has seen Russia go into Ukraine. They've seen the reaction of the West. um, And they also recognize that if they ever made a move on Taiwan, that's exactly what would happen to them. And I I think that Taiwan, that China is a little less um, reticent about uh, the potential for conflict. Um, And this is bad news for Taiwan, because I believe sooner rather than later, China is going to present Taiwan with an ultimatum, especially if Taiwan continues to tickle the dragon by buying weapons from the United States, by allowing these high-profile political visits. Um, you know, this is, this is simply uh, not acceptable to China. And uh, unfortunately for Taiwan, just like the case was in Ukraine, you don't get a vote when you live next door to somebody whom you are presenting an existential threat to. When you have made a decision to do something that they view as an existential threat, uh, you become the target. And the target means that if you don't change what you're doing, uh, you're going to be destroyed. Ukraine is in the process of being destroyed, and that is the future for Taiwan. And hopefully the Taiwanese leadership is looking at Ukraine and understand that they're before the grace of whoever leads them, go them. Um, Do they really want to lose tens of thousands of dead people, millions of displaced people, destroy their economy for an inevitable outcome that nothing will change? Just like nothing will prevent Russia from winning in Ukraine, there is nothing that can prevent China from winning in Taiwan. And I think China has actually been liberated uh, politically by the Russian action because it's no longer something new, something that will shock the world. In fact, I think the whole world is expecting it. And I do believe that China is going to deliver, again, as I said, sooner rather than later. 
You know, it, it just it simplified. It seems like this to me, Ray. Russia's saying, get off my border or, you know, we're a world power. And if you come to our border, we'll fight. And basically, China's kind of looking the same way. And, it, and the U.S. would if somebody started building military bases on our border. Anyway, your thoughts on the, on the Taiwanese-China situation, Ray McGovern? Well, uh, I think that you, you, you remember that I've been making a, a point for over a year now that the U.S. Uh, could could face a two-front war with two other very large, very powerful nuclear-armed countries. Um, I don't think that Putin would have been so aggressive with respect to Ukraine had he not gotten beforehand the blessing of Xi Jinping, the president of China. What does that mean? Well, that means that China realizes that if Russia loses out in some way to the West, China is next in line for the ministrations of our military. And they don't have to, they have to guess at that. Uh, what has escaped much attention is that the Pentagon put out their national strategy statement. Every four years, it's a big deal. Who's enemy number one? C-H-I-N-A. Who's sort of like a, a subcategory of enemy number one? Well, Russia. So those who, who blamed Putin for delaying the issuance of this paper and thought that, oh, maybe they're going to say Russia and China. No, 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 it's still China. Now, does that mean something? Yes, it means something, especially when you have these crazy admirals advocating to double the Seventh Fleet to get it, you know, to get it up to par. And so here are the Chinese looking at the situation. I see them as uh, watching and saying, well, number one, phew, uh, the West and NATO, who still consider us number one, enemy number one, their attention is diverted right now. That gives us a little cooling period. Number two, uh, you know, if Putin needs some help, we're gonna we're gonna rattle some sabers out here. We're gonna show we're gonna show who's boss in this kind of area because this is our near abroad, and we may have to teach the the, the Americans some lessons. Do the Americans want to get involved in a two front war? I don't think so. I think our military. They've not been the best in the world in terms of strategy, but I think it should be clear to them. The last thing the United States needs is to is to uh, confront uh, or to have China and Russia together confronting the United States. And China can prevent that by doing a dust up out there across from in the Taiwan Strait or in South China Sea. Uh, not something that gets them nuked, but something that gives Washington pause and says, my God, what have we done here? We're not really winning so much in Ukraine. Now it looks like we have a two-front possibility. That's poison. I didn't even think about that. They don't have to go all out. It, it would be, be the equivalent of uh, like what happened in Kiev, where you, you know, you put a big column there to hold somebody in place, where they grab the attention of the American military and make them concerned. Uh, let's move on. Scott, my God, man, it's been a long week on Twitter. You've been on again, off again. And uh, you're th- and, and then um, basically Elon Musk says he wants to buy Twitter, which I said there ain't no way that the CIA is selling, the, uh, you know, an, an, a tool and asset that they have to Elon Musk. At any rate, Scott Ritter, Twitter Wars, your thoughts? Well, I mean, as you probably heard, I've, I've been permanently banned from Twitter. It's no longer a temporary suspension, um, ostensibly for violating rules about um, harassment and abusive behavior. But when you read the tweet and compare it with the rules, 
uh, never the twain shall meet. There's no no rules were violated. What what appears to have happened is that my uh, account uh, became a problem for the uh, Twitter algorithm. I was gaining too many followers too fast about topics that were too controversial, so I was shut down. Um, this is a direct assault on freedom of speech. Even if you don't agree with what I say, even if you don't like me, um, you need to understand that if they can shut me down because an algorithm decided that I was uh, I was inconvenient for uh, the mainstream uh, narrative, they can shut anybody down. And, there, and, and there's a lot of people saying, well, maybe Elon Musk is the solution. The moment the United States requires a billionaire to intervene to protect free speech, we've got problems. And I will tell you <laughs> another problem we have. When we have a billionaire having to confront Saudi Arabian princes about issues pertaining to constitutional rights of American citizens, we have a problem. This is a congressional issue. This is something Congress should be jumping on. But Congress is the problem because Congress has pressured uh, social media outlets like uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Google to um, ban, to eradicate, to eliminate um, what they call disinformation. Now, it's funny because it's not People like me who are spouting disinformation, the U.S. government has admitted that it's declassifying intelligence and releasing it, even though it knows it's false for the deliberate purpose of creating a perception. That is the, 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 the legal definition of disinformation. Um, I'm being challenged for, for, for calling them out on that, for challenging a narrative that isn't fact-based. Uh, this is it's not just a personal issue. This is a, a this is a fundamental issue of who we are and what we are as a nation. This is a frontal assault on free speech. Thanks a lot. Uh, a very good, very good comments. Ray, I, I, we don't have a lot of time left, so I want to jump to Marine Le Pen. Very interesting. She's saying a couple of things. She says she'll call for an implementation of a strategic rapprochement with NATO and Russia. And she goes on to say that she doesn't want her country to be sub, in subjection to the United States. Interesting. Certainly, historically, the Le Pen gr- uh, political group has taken some positions that a person like me wouldn't be thrilled with. However, let's look at this more broadly. Marine Le Pen, what does this mean to the EU? What does this say to France? What does this indicate? Ray, let's start with you. Well, I think uh, we have problems. That is, the United States has problems, not only with France, but with Germany. Uh, These sanctions are going to bite, and they're going to bite really hard. And there are lots of industrialists in both, both countries that really need to uh, keep their ties with Russia. Uh, with respect to Le Pen, uh, she's poisoned internally uh, in, in, within France, but her, her foreign policy sounds very much like de Gaulle, and he was, <laughs> he was a pretty popular guy there in France. So to the degree that the French are, are smart enough to realize that, uh, uh, that they've been, there's been a sort of charade with their current president marching up and down to, to, to the Kremlin, uh, you know, they may go for Le Pen. Now, that's just a guess on my part. What that would mean would be a shattering, a, a real serious shattering of relations with other West European countries, including, of course, Germany. And Germany has its own problems, economic problems. And when push comes to shove, with respect to all these sanctions and everything else, you know, it's the economy, stupid. It's the economy, stupid. And that's what's going to uh, turn 
the, the German government back around to a posture that it had assumed ever since the war and decided under impulse to reject. I don't see the Russia. I don't see the Germans getting back in full full bore and, and supplying tanks and all that kind of stuff to to Ukraine. I think they're smart enough not to have uh, their tanks blown up by the Russian air force as they try to get in and the black guy that that would uh, would would give them. So I, you know, it's really it's very very interesting. The twenty fourth, I guess, just nine days mm-hmm. away. But we'll we'll know soon enough, and this is pretty unexpected. This will be the first litmus test of what kind of reaction uh, in one very important West European country these events in Ukraine and U.S. and Russia will have. Scott Ritter, and I would think even if she doesn't win, if she comes close, and she may win, it will scare the bejesus out of Olaf Scholz and, and people like Mario Draghi, etc. Anyway, M- Marine Le Pen, what does this say about what's happening in uh, the blowback from the sanctions and the whole Ukraine crisis? Scott Ritter. Well, look, I, I view Marine Le Pen as the savior of the world. And what I mean by that, and I'm not being facetious here, there's something about to happen that um, should scare everybody to death. Finland says it's going to join NATO and that its membership will be considered by NATO at the June summit in Madrid. Now, Sweden says the same thing, but understand Sweden doesn't share a border with Russia. So Sweden is just an inconvenience. Finland, however, had allied itself with Nazi Germany back in World War II, had laid siege to Leningrad, killing a million-plus Soviet citizens and had threatened Soviet and Russian, later Russian strategic uh, positions in the Kola Peninsula. Finland exists today only because it agreed to permanent neutrality, uh, and, and that includes never allowing their soil to be used as a potential jumping off spot for foreign armies to threaten Soviet Union slash Russia. If Finland joins NATO, it is walking away from that promise. And Russia is going to issue its own promise, which is, as Ukraine went, so will Finland. I'm telling you right now that I believe that if Finland joins NATO, Russia will have no choice but to invade Finland and destroy Finland. It will be much worse than what's happening in Ukraine because Ukraine was a special military operation. Finland will be war, outright war, a war of destruction because Finland reneged on a promise and is in the you can't have a NATO member within spitting distance of Russia's second largest city. Now, why did I bring this up? Because Finland can't join unless there's unanimity in NATO. And the only chance we have right now of defeating this mad rush to allowing Finland and Sweden in is if Marie Le Pen wins the election and France vetoes this this insanity going on. Because remember, to let people in under Article 10, it requires NATO to consider the membership within the framework of does it increase the security of NATO. And any sane person who looks at it says, if we let Finland in, there will be a war. War cannot increase the security of NATO. And Marie Le Pen right now is positioned to be the only significant member of NATO ready to make that statement. So I view her becoming president as the savior of, of, of Europe, the savior of the world, because who knows what would happen if Russia went to war against Finland? This would be, um, you know, this, this would take this, this current crisis to another level altogether. But Russia's not going to walk away from this one. They're not going to walk away. 
and only Marine Le Pen can save us. Thanks a lot. We've been talking to Scott Ritter and Ray McGovern. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. Venezuela is celebrating its 20th anniversary of overcoming a U.S. coup attempt against Hugo Chavez. Also, we'll discuss censorship and the U.S. information war against the American people, along with cratering poll numbers for the Democrats and Europe's plan to drop Russian oil. For more on these and exciting stories, we turn to Steve Poikin, and he's a national organizer for Action for Assange. Steve, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks, Carlin. Great to be here. And Dan Kavalik, he's a writer, author of many, many books, including The Plot to Scapegoat Russia and How the CIA and the Deep State Have Conspired to Vilify Russia. Dan, thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me, Garland. Let's start here. Let's start at the top. Um, Venezuela, there, you know, many people are marching to um, commemorate the the coup defeat anniversary, shall we say. Uh, let's start with that. Your thoughts on that, and particularly in the times that we're in, you know, Dan, where the U.S. is taking this moral high ground. Oh, my gosh, the Russians have done something terrible. They're doing terrible things. And we, as the pious and self-righteous United States, is looking down our noses at this evil country. When you look at our history, my God, all over South America, but in, in particular at this um, all over the world, but but at this particular um, event that happened in Venezuela, we'll start with you, uh, Dan Cavalli. Yeah, well, yeah, of course, we know that the U.S. Uh, was very much behind the coup in 2002 in which, uh, you know, the sitting president, Hugo Chavez, who was duly elected, was uh, kidnapped uh, by uh, segments of the military. He was taken to an island. Some believe he was tortured, though that only only um, Chavez and his torturers know whether that was true or not. And immediately the uh, coup leaders who were from the business community and the Catholic Church, you know, the most reactionary parts of society, uh, they threw out uh, the Constitution. They threw out. Uh, they uh, disbanded the National Assembly, the Supreme Court. Essentially, they destroyed in one day. Um, you know, in a uh, press conference, all of the elements of, of Venezuelan democracy. And again, incredibly, uh, papers like the New York Times lauded this as a return of democracy to Venezuela. You know, which just shows. You know how mistaken we are about what democracy is and is not. In any case, um, Chavez was brought back to power within a couple days because really the poor of Caracas came down from the barrios in the mountains and they demanded his return. And that happened. And there were some loyal forces in the military who helped that to happen. And it was a glorious uh, day. I remember it. It was a Sunday and I remember that happening. And it was a as if, you know, Salvador Allende had returned from the dead, right? I mean, it's rare that someone is a victim of a, of a successful coup, U.S. coup, 
And not only do they survive, but they return to power. In fact, it's hard for me to think of another case like that. So it is absolutely something to celebrate. But yes, just uh, one of many, many examples of how the U.S. uh, really disregards, you know, democratic processes in other countries. Steve Foykin, in your thoughts? Well, in the U.S., it's kind of made a, uh, I I guess, quadrennial. I'm not sure how to explain it. Every so often, every six to eight years, we decide we're going to try and coup somebody in Venezuela again. The the, um, last unsuccessful attempt was 2019, following an unsuccessful attempt in 2015, after an unsuccessful attempt in, I believe, 2007, maybe 2009, too. It's kind of like uh, the U.S. plays coup Olympics all over Central and South America. Um, we we just found out recently, I believe, right, that one of the uh, one of the two people that floated onto shore uh, during the last unsuccessful coup and sort of almost installation on Guaido, uh, one of the the uh, U.S. I guess active duty service members who washed up on shore just got back over stateside. Uh, I'm I'm glad that there's you know I'm glad that they're able to celebrate this. I'm glad that that the vast majority of the world doesn't recognize uh, you know fake puppet President Guaido recognizes um, that, that Venezuela already has a democratically elected president by all accounts, free and fair elections too. You know, uh, interesting that, uh, you know, in the in, 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 you know, we talk about that in the context of what's going on here in what's going on in, in Ukraine. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro warned that a multifaceted campaign by, by Western countries to isolate Russia was aimed at destroying the country in order to develop the develop to deter the development of a multifaceted world. And one of the things that I think um, was important, he said, Maduro signaled that the campaign against Russia, a strong ally of Venezuela, was being driven by a Western media dictatorship that promoted obscene lies and campaigns against humanity. And, you know, based on what you brought up, I mean, if we look at what um, Dan just brought up about The New York Times and that we know that the U.S. went into Venezuela amongst other countries and would go in and buy up the newspapers and buy up the the media outlets and they in a country. The media outlets would be run by U.S. intelligence and just put out U.S. propaganda against the people of the country and in order to turn the people against the government. And, of course, our own um, media does that here. Your thoughts, Dan, Dan Cavalli? Yeah, well, no, it's true. I mean, um, and, and there's nothing worse you can do, of course, to another country than to try to destabilize it in the way that we do in countries like Venezuela or you know going back to Iran in the 19 early 1950s i mean this playbook of of as you say spreading false propaganda about a foreign government uh, paying people to not only protest but to commit acts of violence again this happened when the us overthrew mossadegh in iran and arbenz in guatemala and and certainly it's happened uh, on a number of occasions in in venezuela and in Nicaragua as well. And uh, again, even the very notion of, of trying to, to destabilize another country, can you imagine that, you know, the notion of, of, of our country being destabilized? I mean, everyone wants stability and peace and, and uh, prosperity. 
And the U.S. is hell-bent on disrupting that in countries that we uh, oppose. And it's really something that Americans need to be aware of. I think very few Americans are. Um, And it's something that Americans need to oppose. Very recently, there was a hit piece done on Radio Sputnik on, on CNN. And one of the things that I thought was interesting about Anderson Cooper's particular comments is he talked about sowing doubt, that the Russian propaganda sows doubt, and that that's like a key, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, a key part of misinformation. Doubt is misinformation, which implies that no doubt, that certainty is what we want without doubt. So what CNN, and and, 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 and I mean, which is flies in the face of logic and philosophy, that CNN And the government should give us a narrative and that we should act upon it as a matter of faith without doubt. And if anyone says to you, Steve, um, the government just said you something, you should perhaps have a little doubt about that. That's misinformation. I find that appalling. But let's start with you, Uh, Steve. um, I know you never spread doubt about government narratives, but your thought on the idea about this whole issue. Um. John Pilger talks about interviewing back in the 70s, Leni Reifenstahl, who did Hitler's propaganda films. And, and he asks her what made them so successful. And she said, well, it, was, it didn't really have anything to do with how well they were written or, or my vision as a, a director, producer, anything like that. It, it was the, um, what did she call it? The, the soft void of a, a malleable public who had the intelligentsia, the chattering class, um, all of the the officialdom um, and their talking heads hammering away lie after lie after lie, day after day after day. And that's what allowed for it, because if you asked a question, it was considered treason. The moment that asking questions become a treason, you are living in a totalitarian state. We are rapidly heading towards that in terms of the um, siphoning, I guess. No, no, that's the wrong words. <clears throat> in terms of the, uh, the filtering, I guess, uh, of information. Julian Assange spoke of this. One day we'll wind up in a filter verse of one because of how uh, algorithmically molded we are uh, in, in our social media or online experience. You know, Dan, um, Scott Ritter wrote a great article about this, and his article is called U.S. Intelligence Community Killed Its Own Credibility by Revealing Its Ukraine Policies, and It Should Have Had None. But he references an article by Ken Delanian in NBC News. And might I add, Ken Delanian is a man who was fired from the L.A. Times, spectacularly fired because he was sending his articles to the CIA and working with the CIA on the content of his articles before they even went to his publisher. After that, Public humiliation, as I would see it, NBC News brought him in, and he's one of their top guys now. And he he wrote this, was a co-writer in an article, in a break with the past, U.S. is using intel to fight an info war with Russia, even if the intel isn't rock solid. And when you read the article, they're not using intel that's not rock solid. He makes it clear they're making up lies out of whole cloth. 
that that the our government is lying to us and add to that then we get a media that says doubt is misinformation when our government admits to us that they're making up things out of whole cloth dan uh, kavalik how dangerous is this yeah no it's incredible uh, obviously we should doubt our government i mean in fact in a democratic society you should be encouraged to doubt your government especially in times of war um, you know, and this thing about the CIA spreading, you know, misinformation and disinformation, I mean, it's as old as the uh, CIA itself. You know, I remember John Stockwell, who was in the CIA, and he was working in Angola. He later quit and discussed, and he said that, you know, during the uh, war in Angola, the CIA, his CIA team would simply write entire articles about, you know, Cuban troops allegedly, you know, raping uh, women in, in Angola, which he said never happened, but they just make it up and they'd send these fully uh, formed articles to the papers and they would just print them. Um, and I have no doubt that that sort of thing continues uh, to happen to this day. And even if it doesn't happen exactly like that, you certainly see major media outlets uh, simply regurgitating claims by the State Department, by the CIA. Uh, by the White House, uh, as if they're fact, when oftentimes uh, they're not fact at all. In fact, they may be complete falsehoods. And so why would we trust our government? Why would we trust what we're being told uh, about war when we know we were lied into the war in Iraq, for example, based on lies of uh, weapons of mass destruction? And we were lied in the Vietnam War, the, uh, you know, over the Gulf of Tonkin incidents that never happened. So, of course, we should uh, have doubt. And, and the reason they don't want us to have doubt is because if we did, their narrative would very quickly fall apart. You know, Steve, I know you're familiar with the article, but what I find interesting is in this article that one of the first things they talked about was that they had made claims that Russia would use chemical weapons, may use chemical weapons in Ukraine, even though they knew um, they had no evidence whatsoever that Russia even had chemical weapons in Ukraine. But they said that anyway, and they admit pretty much admitted that it was a lie. And then a few days later, an article came out and it said that three people in the Azov battalion said they encountered a, quote, poisonous substance. And there's no evidence that it's chemical weapons. And then the rest of the article went on. But if the Russians use chemical weapons, that's a red line and we got to act and blah, blah, blah. Three Nazis said, I, I don't know, that they rubbed something on them. Why would you trust these guys, et cetera? But in light of that article, to me, it just demonstrates they print an article that says, yeah, the intelligence lies to you about that stuff. And then we print it. And so, you know, it's all a pack of lies and we print it unquestionably. Oh, wait a minute. We got a new pack of lies. Steve, how, how, how insidious and, and sinister is this? Well, I, I mean, it, it's yeah, I hate to, to use it because a lot of people have lately. But I mean, it, it truly is Orwellian in that you are forcing people into uh, a position where yesterday never happened. The only thing that exists is whatever the talking points of the day are. The party is never wrong. You can't ask questions. If the state tells you this happened, it obviously happened. And we're sort of being pushed into an Oceania was always at war with Eurasia. But anyway, as a result of this, as NATO further expands, 
Finland and Sweden are talking about joining NATO now. Out in the open, Sweden's prime minister is kind of spending it a little bit, but I mean, it's, it looks like that's something that's going to happen. In terms of the, the word of a couple of Nazis as to whether or not they encountered a poisonous substance, are they the same Nazis that Zelensky brought with him to address the Greek parliament, or are they different Nazis? Because there seems to be a whole lot of Nazis that are running around Ukraine that are getting a free pass because now there's a a differentiation between good Nazis and bad Nazis. The good Nazis, of course, live in Ukraine and are fighting Vladimir Putin. The bad Nazis are are your neighbors who want to take a little bit more of a a, uh, role in their children's education. We all know this, right? Right? It was (laughs) clear. Ned Ned Price made that clear. Yes, sir. Noodleman. (laughs) <laughs> Here's something else I think we have to discuss. Some new poll numbers have come out. And needless to say, they're about where actually they're considerably higher than I would expect. Joe Biden is at 33 percent. Latinos, 24 percent. In African-Americans, he's dropped 60, uh, 20 points to 63 percent. But let me say this. It seems to me, maybe I'm cynical, the, the Democratic Party doesn't seem to care. It seems to me that we have a uniparty. And at this point, if you are the billionaires in charge, what do you care if the Democrats get wiped out? You're still in charge of the Republican Party. If you're the person that gives 500000 to the Republicans and 500000 to the Democrats in any given sem- uh, congressional race, it doesn't matter to you anymore if one gets wiped out. And I think this is what it's reflecting. Normally, we'd see the Dem- they said the article even says the Democrats should be terrified by these poll numbers, but they're not because what do they care? If they lose, they get to go to work for a think think tank. They get to go to work for Lockheed Martin and they make a fortune. At any rate, that's a whole that's a mouthful. Dan, your thoughts on the poll numbers and what it means? Yeah, first of all, I mean, it's not surprising that they're bad because uh, what have the Democrats done? I mean, really, um, for for anybody, um, clearly, you know, I think it's fair to say that Biden, um, you know, his conduct helped provoke Russia into this war. And um, uh, clearly he doesn't know how to handle uh, the war that has transpired and the sanctions that he's imposed on Russia are going to hurt Americans, uh, you know, everyday Americans and are already starting to. Um, you know, so there's nothing the Democrats can point to uh, that they've done for, for the people who voted them in. And I agree with you. They don't seem to care. They don't really care. They don't seem to have the will to rule. And I think the reason is for the reason you said, because, look, they basically, you know, they make promises that somehow they're they're the friend of the, you know, of of Joe Sixpack somehow, although they hate Joe Sixpack, I guess now. But they claim that they're here to do something for average Americans. Right. The, The Republicans don't even make a pretense of that. But the Democrats clearly don't want to follow through on those promises, right? Um, and haven't done it. So I think they're just as happy to be voted out, so they don't have to be, you know, their so their bluff doesn't have to be called by the American public. And as you say, you know, people like Nancy Pelosi, who make millions and millions of dollars on what it amounts to insider trading, they'll continue to make that money, uh, whether they're the governing party or not. So. No, it, it's a staged democracy is what we have. And and the only thing you can count on is that the ruling 
economic elite will always win. That is a, a certainty. Biden offers handshake to imaginary friend. Now, I watched the video and it was pretty horrifying. Joe Biden gives this speech at North, North Carolina A&T, right, which is a traditionally black college. He gives his discussion. Afterwards, he turns to the right and sticks his hand out to shake somebody's hand. But nobody's there. And he stands there for a second and kind of looks. He turns around. He walks in one direction towards the back of the stage. He looks confused. He walks directly straight behind him in the back of the stage. He looks confused. And then he turns around and it seems as though, I'm adding this, that he figures out how to get off the stage. A, a, a perfect metaphor for the Democrats. You know what I mean? They are stupefied. The only thing they know now right now is, and let me add this, they have completely abandoned any thought of America. They are about the empire now. The neocon, you are, America is seeing now, this is what America looks like when the neocon sociopath and psycho, psychopaths get in charge. This is about how can the empire... Um, achieve its hegemonic goals. The American people are just, uh, we're as much of a nuisance to be sacrificed as the Ukrainians are. Steve. Well, you're, you're framing it as an empire couldn't be more accurate because there is a stage in every empire where the people who are, are you know, clearly pulling the strings allow for a, a brain-addled, demented, clear puppet to be put in front of the people so that the people know that this is in fact an empire and there are people running this empire that are not the person that you think is the president of the United States. Clearly this guy was turning around to shake the hand of his imaginary black friend or something. I don't really know what he was doing. I don't, I don't think his handlers know what he was doing to, to your previous, to the previous point though, I did want to say about like the DC bubble and the interchangeability of politicians, think tanks, lobbyists, whatnot, if all you have in a deck of cards is jokers, it doesn't matter who's shuffling the cards <laughs> or how many times they're shuffled. You're passing out nothing but jokers every single time. So, And that's Washington, D.C., kind of in a nutshell there. But I mean, Biden's, Biden's handlers have to be worried at this point, and they have to be looking at uh, Kamala Harris's likability numbers and favorability oh, ratings going, who else, uh, Garland, you and I have talked about this, but I mean, who else can they drag into front and center and be like, no, no, this is the hope of the, the party because you're absolutely right. They do not care about average Americans. Dan, let's jump across the pond for a second when we see what's happening in Europe. The U.S., you know, part of every good politician has to hold together a coalition. And one of the things that's going on is the U.S. empire has to hold together its coalition of vassals in um, Europe to continue their um, economically suicidal and hopefully not physically suicidal um, uh, uh, confrontation with Russia. But they got some holes in the ship. Um, Marine Le Pen, who most wouldn't think would have much of a chance and hasn't in the past, has a significant chance of winning. I think that um, the people in Europe are feeling the crunch when it comes to food, when it comes to prices. And um, I, I see this summer Europe potentially exploding, I mean, with, um, you know, street protests, et cetera, because it's really going bad economically simply because they're following the U.S. down the straight down the road to economic hell. Dan. No, I mean, we are seeing an inflection point, of course, in the world. Um, 
And and again, as you mentioned before, of course, uh, the U.S. was happy to sacrifice Ukraine to try to undermine Russia. But in the same way, they were happy to sacrifice the EU to do the same thing. I mean, these sanctions are killing the economies of Europe. And the U.S. not only seems not to care, they seem to be happy that it happened. That is to say maybe they even intended it to happen, right? I mean they're going after Russia Russia because they see it as another capitalist rival, right? Russia is not communist anymore. It's another capitalist country, but it is a rival. And so the U.S. is trying to kneecap it. Well, in the same way, it's trying to kneecap its EU uh, partners who are also competitors, particularly Germany is an effective uh, competitor. I just think the EU didn't see it coming. They thought we were all together on this one. And uh, I don't think that's the case. And I agree with you that I think that the European people, if they don't realize that now, they're going to realize it soon. And I do think you're going to see a lot of governments fall um, to be replaced, uh, you know, by other parties, hopefully, you know, um, not bad right-wing parties like may happen in France. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, sadly the left in Europe and North America seem to be fairly non-existent and, uh, you know, so sadly a lot of people will turn to the right in that situation. I see Russia, China, India, I see a strong coalition on one side who looks at the U.S. and says and looks at the U.S. empire and says, you know what? China's saying, well, if they're successful for, with Russia, they're coming after us. India has to be saying we aspire to be a great world power one day. And if we ever do get there, we know the U.S. is coming after us. They're creating an environment where these countries have to huddle together like puppies to say those people are crazy and they're going to come after us. And we're all in line like dominoes. So we got to stop this train right now. Your thoughts, uh, Steve? Well, and, and I, people are coming out and discussing a multipolar world like it's going to be a matter of reality, even in the corporate press, especially on the financial channels. It, it is inarguable that um, that the United States is at war with Germany economically and at war with the EU economically via the sanctions that they put onto Russia. I think it may be uh, as big a squeeze to collapse the euro as it is to try to break the ruble, which they were totally unsuccessful in doing. Um, in fact, the, the ruble is worth more now than it was before this whole thing started. Um, we can argue about whether or not it's being inflated later, but it, the uh, the U.S. wants the economic superiority. They want it asymmetrically. So whatever they think they need to do to try to achieve that, they're going to. If that means going through Europe to do it, they will attempt to do it. Uh, but the end goal for all of these countries is a central bank-backed digital currency. China's going to it. Russia's already going to it. The U.S. has talked about going to it. Um, so it, it's a, a race to see who can claim real resources and garland 
you, you know that's not the U.S. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the other thing I think is, when, you know, we've been talking about, sadly, the Ukrainian bodies have been used as cannon fodder for world hegemony. Now, economically, the um, the Europeans are being used as the same kind of economic cannon fire. One could make an argument as we see Joe Biden collapse and stumble around, you know, uh, you know, sadly and, uh, you know, confu- in a confusing fashion that Biden stuck out there. That he's the cannon fighter for the for the empire. They'll throw him out there. They'll let his uh, his his uh, candidacy collapse. They'll uh, charge him with some uh, Hunter Biden related charges. They'll toss him aside and they'll say this whole mess was because Joe Biden was a bad president and he won't even know it happened. But at any rate, we want to thank Steve Porkin, national organizer for Action for Assange, and Dan Kavalik, author of many many books, and he's also a lawyer and a professor. We want to thank you guys for coming and uh, and enjoying and then uh, joining us on The Critical Hour again. You've been listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you are informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking to you Monday again right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe, peace, and blessings. We are out. 